This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Welcome to the Liverpool.com podcast. I'm Ollie Connolly. I'm back in the hosting chair with the boss man Chris Walsh out for another week. Already there are whispers of a kind of Roberto Di Matteo situation could happen here. Um, on the line with me, a pair of Liverpool.com staff writers, Joel Rabinowitz and Dan Morgan. Gentlemen, that's a pretty good week, wasn't it? Not bad at all. Yeah. It's good. It was, it was very pleasant, indeed. Liverpool confirmed as champions, raising the trophy. Dagalish handing it to Henderson. You can't get any more, any greater symbolism than that. Um, the one thing I think we should begin with is just the moment, the feeling, the emotions of it all. Uh, I'll start with you, Joel, because I think from talking to you, you were much more emotional, I think, the night that they were they were crowned as champions, the, the Chelsea game. I find myself I find myself that night being a bit more like confused all over the place, didn't know what to do with myself, whereas I was very emotional once I saw the actual trophy lift. How was it for you? Yeah, emotional at both. I think it's just a different sensation, really. Um, I think the the thing with the night that it got confirmed is that you kind of your fate was out of your own hands. You're kind of banking on something that's to do with two other teams there, and the nature of that Chelsea City game was so sort of chaotic that that sort of played into the drama. Um, and yeah, I remember just feeling that night was just a complete overwhelming sense of this is finally done you know after three months of kind of wondering if we'd actually get to see the football come back and then for it to happen so quickly after the restart was just yeah it was all kind of too much to take in I thought that was kind of the one where I just yeah just sat there and felt kind of dazed by the whole thing really Uh, whereas you've kind of had pretty much a whole month since then to sort of process it Um, and yeah to actually see them lift the thing was just a more like a, just an inner satisfaction, really. I felt quite calm. Obviously, it's emotional to the point when he actually lifts it above his head and you get to see all of them. And even without the fans there, I think that's what... I was slightly concerned that it would feel a little bit sort of manufactured, that they had to kind of put on a bit of a show and, and kind of prove to everyone that, you know, they were enjoying it as much as they should be. But yeah. it didn't feel like that at all. It felt very raw, very natural. And, yeah, I thought it was great the way... You know, usually when you see the trophy presentation after a team wins a league, well, firstly, it often happens within the last couple of games of a season. It's not normal to, to um, well, teams usually win it a couple of games before yeah. the end of a season. It's not normal to have this huge gap between being confirmed champions and having to wait for it. Um, but usually they just roll it onto the pitch at the end of a match. They do the lift and it's kind of, it's over in a few minutes. I love the way that, every single player got to walk up the steps and get welcomed onto that stage. Um, it felt like they all sort of had their moment. And yeah, you get to see the kind of the little kind of, they're obviously such a kind of close knit group together, the squad, but kind of you get to see the little friendships have been there. And I love just the small things like Minamino obviously has come in and not fully settled into the team yet. And it kind of felt like he was a little bit kind of out of the picture. And then you see, like I think it was Henderson sort of put his arm around his shoulder and told him to get involved and, all the stuff like that, and then taking the pictures of their family afterwards. So, yeah, for me, Wednesday night was all just a kind of a warm sort of satisfaction that I was finally seeing it happen. But the the real intense emotion I felt more was the kind of the moment they got crowned. The thing for me, Dan, that I found, um, which I think made the night at least, was... Um, I was with Joel on the fence of, you know, the leaks the day before that they're going to play Coldplay and you look at yourself like, oh, this has a chance to be like 
massively cringy almost. But then when <laughs> Jurgen Klopp came out and he looked right up for it and he disappeared as a manager and he came back as a Bavarian football fan, sideways hat, <laughs> you know, he's got his T-shirt and scarf on. And just him being up for it with that smile, you're like, oh, it's on then. If he's coming with this energy, this is gonna be this is gonna be emotional and fun. And uh, I thought Klopp kind of carried that through for everyone. I think there's definitely um, a truism in the, the the notion that this team works hard but it parties hard. Mm-hmm. And and I think I think all of that. I think you're right, Ollie. But I think all of that sort of encapsulates this kind of they have a taste for trophies um, concept. And I think they really do. And that, you know, that that often gets overlooked in terms of sort of when you're when you're a great team, there's sort of a semblance that you have to win all the time. You just have to because you are you are great, and therefore that needs that needs that corroboration all the time. But but I think with this team, I think they really really enjoy yeah. the moment that they win a trophy, and and it is it is addictive. That it is really addictive because. What what greater let off is there than sort of being with your mates who you've gone through the trenches with for nine months, and then you sort of get this this symbolism of of you are the best, and 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 I think when you see sort of how they've reacted to Champions League and Premier League wins now, um, I think it shows that that they are all. One of the things that struck me most was that how much they they missed. They missed obviously Anfield being full and we missed being there, but how much they were just happy to be around each other. Um, and I think that for me, again, it, it reassures me, like it did in Madrid, that mm-hmm. if we don't if we don't sign a player, then next year we're going to be there again yeah. because they they push the, they push each other. You know, people people just think that all the time that it's down to transfers and it isn't. This is a team which massively pushes each other to its absolute limits and, and we'll do so again next season. The thing that stood out to me with regards to that was the way they looked at the trophy. And I don't know if this is just me being in my feels or it's a pretentious thought or whatnot, but I wrote about it the next day. There's something about the way they look at it that this is ours now. And I think I've written a bunch of pieces of the last few months about how can they stave off complacency, transfers, refresh the coaching staff, new voice, new systems. But then you see them look at it and I remember Gary Neville and Rangick used to talk about this all the time and Ferguson banged on about it all the time, that that's ours. Anyone else who tries to take it, it's not on. That's ours now. And there was a look with them that, yeah, we earned this. It's not just, as you said, Dan, the nine months. It's the two seasons. It's the going so close and, and coming just short, painfully short in a way no team has before. Um, it's the pandemic and I'm wondering whether all that hard work is going to be rendered null and void. Um, and so to finally get it and just, the, just the, the look of them, as you're saying, with each other and then actually staring physically at the trophy, almost in bewilderment and like, wow, this was all worth it. I think of the, the Robertson picture of him looking at his medal and it's just this strange mix of like emotion and like, wow, and it actually happened and this is real. And that thing, I mean, that is just going to stick you. You don't want to let that go. And that's why I think the the disease of winning kicks in where you just want more, more, more. And this side has shown no signs of some of those teams like the right card Barcelona team where European Cup, end of it. We did it. Let's go have a party forever. You know, <laughs> Ronaldinho just swanned off into partydom for the rest of the time. The look on their faces was not like this is this is the end. This is like, this is amazing. And let's keep doing it. Yeah, I mean, if you if you want to know what the trophy thought, there is a piece on, on the <laughs> 
written by the editor Christian, who's on a first-person piece as the Premier League trophy. Um, so that's that's something different, I would say, if you haven't already read it. It's, it's absolutely brilliant, by the way. It's it's masterful that he, he managed to do it as quick as he did as well, given the time constraints we had. But yeah, yeah, massively that, Oli. I mean, Liverpool, there, there was a semblance of kind of, I thought that you got from, from the players who got interviewed. I think there was definitely a semblance of we wanted to be the players who did this. We wanted to go down as history as the players who, for the first time in 30 years, broke this unbelievably turgid case that this club has had with this with this domestic league. And yeah, that that that, that was definitely in the forefront of the minds. But but yeah, it, it's down it's down again to that sort of familiarity breeds hunger. And they will be looking at the medals now and saying, how can we do this again? And that's the other thing, you know, is that people have the views about how it was won and people have the views about whether it was, you know, deflating or whether it was it was marred by the pandemic or by the fact that no fans being there. The thing to remember with this is that there's more than one way to win a league trophy, more than one way to win a title. I would love nothing more than to get a title in the way the City first got theirs. Like, oh, imagine yes. we won it on the last day of the season, next season. Imagine mm-hmm. that. Imagine, ima- there, there, are more, there are more ways to skin that cat. So, you know, it's not just that you go to a final and you, and you win it in a 90-minute in a game. You could win on the last day of the season. You could win it by someone else winning, as we found. You know, you could win it with two games to go, ten games to go, one minute to go. It can happen a, a myriad of different ways, and that can bring a, a myriad of different feelings. One of the things that really struck me was the, in all their comments, was the the mentioning of you. This one's for you. We're doing it for you, um, and that could very commonly be lip service. And anyone who listens to this outside Liverpool would think this was tribalism or sycophantism. If that's an ism, um, but it really felt like there was this underlying feeling of we've got this one, but we'll do it again so that you can you can be here. I actually thought Joel, they did it as well as humanly possible, given the circumstances. I thought it was a good show. I just enjoyed watching it. It made me crazily emotional, which I guess is the only, is the point of the thing. But there was also this underlying feeling that we'll do this again next time and you'll be here for the party. Yeah, I think if you can't have 55,000 people there to watch it, I think you've, you've got to kind of make something out of it and, and go all out. I love what Klopp said afterwards when he was getting interviewed by Sky. I think it was... Um, and they asked him, like, do you feel kind of a sense of sadness or regret that you're doing this without your supporters here? Um, and he said, yeah, of course, I preferred they would be here. Um, but they're not. We can't change that. And in football and in life, you've just got to make the best of every situation. And I think, yeah, the club did a brilliant job, kind of just aesthetically. The, the spectacle was unbelievable. You know, those pictures of the fireworks and the light show. Um, I'd seen like the ones in recent weeks, Salzburg, I think it's the <laughs> Austrian Cup, they won, Bayern won, uh, the Bundesliga, Real Madrid obviously got La Liga a few days ago and th- the context is slightly different there because obviously Bayern win it every single season and Real Madrid haven't won it as much recently but it's not kind of a 30-year wait so mm-hmm. it's not such a unique event um, but, but I do think it was important that they didn't just sort of wheel out a platform onto the pitch and kind of have it done within five or ten minutes I think. Yeah, you you mentioned the players wanting to do it for the fans, and I think definitely that's true. But it's also, I think, from our perspective, you just want you want them to have that moment and feel satisfied that their sort of work, like you said, not just this season, but 
last season and even the season before that is the idea that this has all been building towards something uh, and they needed to mark that in the best way possible and I think you couldn't really ask for much more in the circumstances. Um, I love, by the way, the fact that, I don't know if you've seen the picture of Van Dyke on, on the bus afterwards, but he brought all his medals. All his medals in his little backpack. I tried to picture the moment. Did did he request them? Did he just pack that backpack himself? Like yeah. a, a kid on his way to his first day at school? <laughs> he, he They've all been doing it. There's been a photo shoot, I think it was yesterday. You've seen the players putting them up when they, they've got them, all four of them there. Yeah. Um, and I think it is that idea that you said that winning is addictive and it's not just this isolated, we won by the title. It's this is the kind of culmination of 13, well, not 13 months, it's 13 months they won them all within, but it's two seasons of work there. Um, and even those two kind of interim ones, the Super Cup and the Club World Cup, yeah, they're kind of paired into insignificance compared to, you know, the European Cup and the Premier League, but it still feeds into that idea of just when there is a trophy there to be won, we will win it yeah. and we'll make the most of it. Um, and yeah, hopefully there's still plenty more to come. I think my favourite picture of the night still remained the Van Dyke one, kind of the Kaka not signing for City moment where he's like staring out the window in bewilderment and astonishment at the fans outside. That's a pretty cool moment. Um, I also thought that for them, having their families there, it had to have made a difference. It might have been a little bit stale had they not had those people who meant so much to them right there, you know, there was a chance that they weren't going to be there in the ground. One thing I did want to touch on, Joel, was just the quality of the match. I mean, it's outrageous. It was one of the best games in the Premier League scene all season. It was so open that the 30-minute spell they put together after Canada, after Kate scored the first goal is as good as football as you will ever see a side play. The speed at which they moved the ball was impossible. There was a moment where Mark Alonso just put his hands up like this. I cannot get close to this. It's happening over five yards at a pop and it was pinging around at a pace that was frightening. The the, the Stella, Firmino, Mane interplay, all of it. That, that was them. I, I wrote the, the piece that evening is, that to me is the performance of the champions. The cliche that, you know, it's they go away to Burnley and it's a muggy game and the champions sneak one in and that, that's how champions win because they have this burning desire to win. That's not it for me. Champions are when they're playing a good to very good team and they just blitz them off the field in like a 30-minute torrent of talent that is just like, you cannot live with us because we're that much better than everyone else. And that's what they did for 30 minutes. Yeah, you have to remind yourself that there was, there was actually a 19-minute game of football <laughs> beforehand. It was a strange experience sort of watching that almost as kind of a sideshow to what was happening afterwards. Um, but you're right, it was Probably from a neutral perspective, I definitely imagine one of the games of the season, not just the volume of the goals, but the quality yeah. of them as well. Um, I think what, you know, I don't think it would have spoiled the occasion. I think that would be an exaggeration if Liverpool had lost or drawn, but it did massively help that they, they kind of set the scene with a win of that nature. Um, I think just so they could kind of, yeah, continue that sort of buzz from the match into the, the whole ceremony afterwards. And the manner of it was just, uh, yeah, it was so refreshing, I suppose, after the kind of disappointment and the kind of the slog, I suppose, that the last few games have felt like um, when they've dropped points and they've dominated, but it's just the goal. It felt like there was a kind of force field around the goal, stopping the ball going going in at times, especially against Arsenal and Burnley. Um, yeah, I loved all of our goals, really. Obviously, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about Cater. His was unbelievable. Um, but I, I wrote something yesterday on the fifth, which was kind of slightly overlooked, I felt, because kind of Cater's one was so spectacular and you had the Trent free kick. Um, but the kind of the fifth one was such a, such a Liverpool goal under Klopp, really. Defending a set piece, 
the guy who makes the initial headed clearance, Robertson, is the one who's running the length of the pitch to provide the assist. And there was a couple of passes between Curtis Jones and Trent at the start of a move. You had Marnie carrying it out and then Oxford chamberlain just come on arriving and it was a great finish. I felt really happy for him as well because I think he's probably one of those who's, who's struggled a little bit more since the restart um, hasn't quite looked himself. Um, and I think he, we've written about this as well, but he more than most, I think, is a confidence player and, and gives himself a hard time, probably even more than other people do. Um, yeah. So for him to sort of come on and, and score straight away, it's his eighth goal of the season, which has gone a little bit overlooked in all comps. Uh, but I think that's, that's definitely the most outside of a front three. Um, so yeah, fantastic goal for him and hopefully can take that into next season. But yeah, it was uh, in many ways kind of the, the fitting way to set the scene. Is that was some, uh, some breaking news, chap. Sorry, oh, some breaking news. If you want it, uh, Lovren's agreed to join Zenit St. Petersburg. Apparently, 10, 10 million, ten point six million. Apparently, it's not, bad, it's not a bad fee. That you would have thought maybe the coronavirus that could have gone down. I think they were looking at fifteen twenty, right? So I guess that's a bit of a hit. Um, I guess it depends if they're not supplementing wages or something, which I imagine they would not be for that fee, which is. And, and again, the market they would be looking at was probably going to be suppressed anyway, so it's all in, in balance. Unless you go on that top end Sancho level, that will probably hold firm. But that middle class level will all be suppressed. So it's, I think, about yeah. as good as you can do. You know? Actually, yeah. I thought that someone in the Premier League would have maybe, you know, talked themselves into Premier League experience, champions and all that stuff. And I know he's been a bit of a mess in spurts, but he's also had some solid games this season. I would have thought someone domestically would have talked themselves into it. I think the thing was Strange that move. Once you've uh, once you've done it and you've won the league, I think it must be kind of psychologically at the stage of the career he's at. What is he? Thirty-one now, thirty yeah. or something like that. Once you've won the league and a Champions League of a club like Liverpool, I think it must be quite a quite a strange thing to sort of drop off and play. I don't know what sort of level of club he'd be looking at in the league. Maybe like a sort of I don't know. A Newcastle or, or somewhere. Newcastle, I, I had Newcastle on the brain. He screams of an old school Newcastle yeah. signing. But I think he probably just wants a, a fresh challenge, really, a, a different different environment to work in. I think he's sort of he's calm and, and fair play to me. He's, he's done all he could in England, and yeah. I think uh, just on love. Uh, the way we remember him, a lot of people focus on love and the kind of the mean figure and focusing on his worst performances, and there have been plenty of them, but. The guy has played his part in in all of this, I think, as well. That shouldn't be overlooked. You know, like this season, I keep going back to the Leicester and City games at Anfield in the first half of the season, but he started both of those and was brilliant in both of them. So I think, yeah, once that is a com- confirmed that he is going, um, we shouldn't just sort of dismiss him as this sort of calamity figure that some people paint him as. He has been a really important part of this thing, and I think Klopp and his teammates would say the same. Dare I say it, the uh, Thiago Alcantara transfer is making more sense by the minutes. I thought you were about me. to say it's uh, confirmed there. <laughs> no, no, no. But it, it's making more sense, in my opinion, by the minutes. If you're going to lose players like Lalana, Lovren, um, yeah. and not replace them like for like in terms of positions, I think bringing some of Thiago's experience in and then maybe having options in both midfield and defence with Fabinho, even Henderson, for example, um, I think it makes a lot of sense to maybe go and get him now. 
uh, if that is if there is any any truth in that. But I digress, Charlie. I do apologise. No, no, I think there's a great point there because I did a piece the other day on James Milner and this idea that could he go back to Leeds? Would that be full circle of him? You know, he, like Joel saying there of Lovren, he's kind of achieved everything he could ever hope to have done with Liverpool and to return to his boyhood club. You know, it ended so distastefully at the end there where he didn't want to leave, but he had to leave because of the credit card culture they'd found themselves in. And he kind of did them a solid to try and get them as much money as possible. And maybe the idea of him going back there to help leads in a relegation battle might appeal to him and as i was writing that piece when you go through the salaries that are coming off Liverpool's books with lalana now with lovren you quickly get to about 21 million a year is what you save in per annum wages and that is the number we're looking at for tiago so we can talk about ins and outs and will they get the money for wilson or gruwich or, or lovren or whoever else they look at but the, the figure is the wages you know they don't spend much money in transfers net anyway it's really interesting that everything that's been sort of briefed is that they've agreed the wage deal, sort of the pay deal with him first, rather than the the, the transfer fee with, with Bayern, if that is to be true uh, and to be believed. Um, that would make sense, really, because the first thing you would ask is, well, what's he asking for? How much is he asking for? What type of bonus does he want? OK, if, if we know we're getting rid of Lovren, Lallana, maybe Shakiri, maybe Origi, Maybe Harry Wilson permanently, Michael Grewich permanently. What are the what are the deficits in line with COVID and everything else? Um, can we make it work? Because that's potentially it. You're potentially looking at one transfer in for for four out, and this isn't a penny pinching exercise. It's just Liverpool are mindful of the books now, and I think it I think it where where negligence will come in is if they allow for for what you would class as sort of excessive outs of, of players, even understandably, if they've reached the end of the Liverpool tenure, but just banking on not replacing them at all. I think there's got to be there's got to be a smart move somewhere. And I, I think they'll do Thiago now. I'm generally of the opinion. I think they'll do it. I do too, and I think you raise a good point on our call today that the thing we've discussed a lot of the last few weeks is the importance of Alana. Joel had a great piece on Alana's influence in the early days, but then also the, the tone setting in training. You mentioned on a call earlier we had today about bringing Milner on into these games where things are getting a little bit hectic and just having the nous to maybe take the tactical foul, maybe just slow the play down, maybe just know that, well, I don't usually take three extra seconds on the ball here, but I'm going to do it because it will deflate um, some of the transition stuff. Bringing someone like Thiago in with that now at international level, Champions League level, obviously won everything in the books. He understands the rhythm of a season to, to kind of prepare himself for Champions League and Premier League football. As you go through it and talk it up, I, I said this on one of our old podcasts, that the, the FSG model is to find value in the market. And it is undeniable that Thiago, wherever you think of the interview record, the age is value in this market. That if you can land him for either 30 million and 200 grand a week, you're getting a player who just based on pure talent is probably 55, 60 million in the market. That's great value. And if you can sub out Gruwich, as talented as I think he is, Harry Wilson, who maybe would be a fringe player, Shakiri and Lovren. I mean, come on, that's just a, it's a complete no-brainer. Yeah, that, that's my kind of angle on it, is sort of can't replicate bringing a winner in. And, you know, I think Liverpool have sort of developed winners under Klopp with time. Um, but Thiago has literally been there, done it, worn every T-shirt and will bring that with him. And I think that that's so important when we're, when we're sort of in this, this phase of developing the likes of Curtis Jones and Harvey Elliott and, and, and Nico and 
and other players like that. They've got to sort of look around that dressing room and don't get me wrong, they've got ample examples of, of you know, role models around them from from Virgil to, to Mo Salah, for example. Um, Milner Henderson, again, another two who drive standards up. But if you can just bring another player in, like that's never a bad thing. It's never a bad thing. And I think it'll help with the transition of the, of the side as well. That's that's the other thing is that it sort of allows you, like I say, to just cheat, if you like, in, in a couple of positions for another season. And and if, if you haven't got a fourth centre-back now and, and it does sort of it does sort of get a bit twitchy at some point next season. Then if you get Thiago and you've got the option then of, of Fabinho um, dropping in a bit further, again, maybe Henderson dropping in a bit deeper. Um, and then and then you've got another midfielder who can come in and then the onus is and all on Curtis or Ox if he's not playing great. And yeah, they, they'll, they'll know what he can bring to this team in terms of that. So... Yeah, and no, we started this on Lovren going, but it's very quickly. Very quickly. We've gone to, we've very quickly moved on to an Anciago, which is quite funny. I'm sure Jurgen's uh, the yeah. exact same way. I'm sure whenever he got the call from Peter Moore, he was, he was thinking the exact same thing. John, I mean, Joel's point about earlier on as well, about what he's seen um, around the point of Nike as well is interesting, I think. Like, you know, Nike, if Nike. Like are clever in terms of Mark and they wouldn't be who they are if they weren't. And if Liverpool had a player, especially how much given how much Nike have, have given up to New Balance in these past few weeks since since it returned, if Liverpool had a player lined up, Nike will undoubtedly be saying, No, you wait until our deal's in place till you announce him. You know, if there's if there's a photo app he's in a Nike kit, he's not in a New Balance one. So what's this space, eh? There was a report on The Athletic last week that Nike were not insistent, obviously, as the start of the relationship, but were keen for there to be a new signing, whether that is of the level of Thiago, a Minamino-type deal, I don't know. But they were interested, at least. in. in I think they made it quite clear that they, they would be their preferable option to have a new signing uh, wearing the new kit. Um, so like you said, we'll watch this space. Um, just returning quickly to the Chelsea game, I wanted to discuss the, the touchline shuffle, uh, shuffle, kerfuffle, um, between... Frank Lampard, Jurgen Klopp, Pepler. Frank Lampard versus the world, really. I thought that it was quite funny. The online conversation um, seemed to centre on a large group of people quite enjoying Lampard giving it to Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool's uh, perceived arrogance. Um, <clears throat> and not to, again, just tribally go on the side of Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool. But I, I thought just neutrally it was a manager at the top level losing his head in a way managed at the top level rarely do and probably should not. Seth there? I think, yes. Uh, it didn't reflect greatly on Lampard. I think, I mean, we have to be honest as well. I think this thing probably does go on a little bit more than we realise. It's just that because you can hear it all so clearly and see it, um, you know, I'm sure Klopp's had plenty of rants on the touchline before that we've not heard. I will um, say that, just, just sorry to interrupt Joel, but at the at the um, FA Cup game that I went to, they, they were again having a similar back and forth. What was different about this one, and yes, we've seen explosions before. Anytime Mourinho is involved, there's an explosion. We had Daglish and Wenger, still my all-time favourite. Just That was just <laughs> a classic, like, wine drinker versus ale drinker, all-timer. I've never seen, when I've been in attendance, players laughing at the other manager which to me either said a lot about that that's quite uncommon to the degree it was at because it was the disparity between they weren't going at each other 
Klopp seem almost confused by the level of venom. And then you've got James Milner, who will know Frank Lampard very well, turning to his friends and basically giggling at how much Frank Lampard has lost the plot. It was what it was about as well. I mean, it was a free kick 30 yards out or so. Um, I think it probably was a a foul as well. Yeah, I mean, he got a bit of the ball, but he got the man as well. Um, But yeah, I mean, you understand that a little bit more if it's like last minute and it's a a really dodgy penalty. Uh, You can kind of forgive anyone for losing ahead of that or something like that or sending off but it was just an innocuous foul that quite far out from goal and the fact that Trent goes and sticks it in the top corner straight away and then Linders gets out and, and fronts up to Lampard there was amusing it's a shame like you said with that video sort of cut out just before we got <laughs> yeah. to see the reaction between the two um, but yeah I just enjoyed how Klopp sort of just stood there and stared kind of amused at, <laughs> at Lampard um, I I kind of like this idea that within the Liverpool circles, Pep Linders is kind of this beloved, like, really interesting guy who's a little bit giggly and, and kind of quite fun. I, I kind of like the idea that in Premier League circles, they can't stand him because he's like a, a bit of a so-and-so on the on the, on the touchline during matches. I think that's quite fun. Um, Dan, there's something you mentioned to me earlier that I thought was interesting. This thing that's happening right now with the siege mentality at City that stuff at Chelsea there and the perceived arrogance of Liverpool, the, this kind of new new age versus the old school and and Liverpool being the establishment and coming back to the, the to claim their crown basically back on the purge and it kind of getting the backup of of the new age guys who are like wait this is our space now. Yeah, it's it's that, it's that sort of meme. Are we the baddies? You know. <laughs> I'm just I'm just writing on it now. Um, I'm just writing something about it now. Like Liverpool have become the enemy. Liverpool, I mean, Liverpool fans were used to that. We we are the unbearables to many. We, you know, we are we are the team that nobody likes in terms of a fan base. Fair enough, whatever. Um, generalising in general is a problem for me with this kind of thing because that means then people sort of have to take ownership for other people who support the same football club. And whether that's with football, politics, or religion, I don't, I don't agree with that at all as a concept. Um, I think it's problematic throughout society. But I digress on that. I mean, just back on on the actual point here. I think what's interesting about the other night is you sort of forget how much pressure's on Lampard. The, the game, I think, only plays out the way it does because Chelsea need to come to Anfield and win. You know, that's that's the thing for me. I don't think. You're going to see many games like that next season where a team comes out, puts a full press on, basically plays with a front four. Um, and it just shows Lampard was under huge amounts of pressure um, to go and win that game. Similarly, likewise, you know, Pep Guardiola has found himself under, under increased pressure, I'd say, this season because of what Liverpool have done. And all of this just says to me that this isn't really our problem, it's theirs. You know, these are the guys who feeling sort of the burden, the weight on the shoulders of, of, of this Liverpool team. And and yeah, we should we should fight for, for decisions in game and nobody should be told to, to sort of get back in the box by Frank Lampard of all people. Um because that's what he was doing in a really sort of arrogant type of way. Um elitist type of way if you like. But yeah, um for me there is a, there is a sort of wider context of this just shows how much these are feeling the needle and we're not now. Mm-hmm. Um, I just quickly on the game before we move on to some other stuff. 
there was one thing that stood out to me that was really interesting. It was on the NBC coverage. I don't think they showed it on Sky, um, which was Jurgen Klopp acting in a much different way in the technical area than he normally does, which was kind of shuffling players and doing a lot more of kind of the, the micro-tactical management level. There was a lot of uh, come, 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 stop, and stuff that he doesn't normally... Usually he's all... It's all just not cheerleading, but it is the tempo. It's M-O, pick it up. Maybe, you know, shouts and orders here and there. But he does very little of the, the kind of slight tweaks of, I want you to move a little bit to this space, stop, trying to figure out what was going on with Chelsea in that first 10 minutes, which I thought was fascinating. And one of those big things was, was Naby Keita. And Keita's shown, I think, in the last... Last three games, certainly since the restart, he's kind of become the player that we all hoped of, that we saw in the YouTube compilations at Leipzig. And him having this kind of positional versatility where he was unbelievable at Brighton playing on the right, linking up with Mo Salah against Chelsea. He's the guy who Klopp puts into this role where he's basically playing wide on the left with Mane helping double on the left side, but then um, in possession, dropping into a double pivot with Fabinho covering a massive amount of ground. Um, and being told by the manager kind of on a possession-by-possession possession basis, no, you need to move here a little, now move here a little. Um, that's an area of Cater's game. I think that a lot of the stuff discussed with him is the technical on-the-ball brilliance. I think what is lost a little, Joel, is what Cater opens up for you just kind of in terms of formational diversity whilst you're on the pitch, these kind of little mini tweaks within a game where I think he opens up a lot of stuff for Klopp, particularly him and Wijnaldum together, you don't necessarily get a bit tennis and wine out even Oxley Chamberlain, who's kind of a on the drive type player, but it's more north south bulldozing stuff than what we see from Cater. I just think he's been a complete breath of fresh air since uh, since the restart. Yeah, I think you could probably make a pretty strong case. He's been one, if not the best, probably in the top three Liverpool players since the restart. I think I know he's not started all of those games, but when he has been on the pitch, like you say. Brighton was exceptional, obviously, the way he gets that assist there. And last night is, without question, his best goal and one of his best performances for Liverpool. His goal actually reminds me of one, I don't know who it was against, but when you watched all the kind of Leipzig compilations of Cater before he joined, he scored one almost exactly like that in the top corner from that part of the pitch. Um, So it was nice to see him finally do that in a Liverpool shirt. I think what you mentioned there about flexibility is really important. I think what you get with him is this sort of, it's just it's unpredictability, but it's not. Um, it's it's an, a controlled unpredictability as much yeah. as I'm trying to say. Whereas you bring on someone like Shakiri, for example, he's unpredictable, but in a very kind of his teammates don't really know what he's going to do something mad. Which sometimes you need, like against Manu when he comes off the bench and he scores twice, or you know you pick out a, a pass or assist that nobody else will see. With Kato, it's all very coordinated, and I think you've seen more and more since the restart him not just being a sort of hugely gifted maverick who kind of will do his own thing within the team. You see him doing that now as part of a system, which I think is really important moving forward. Um, you know, we know he's got this, this ability on the ball. Um, and there was a lovely spin as well in the first half, which was just uh, outrageous, brilliant to watch. Yeah. But it's all the other bits as well that you want to see off the ball, where he's standing, the players he's linking up with, um, He's got the picture in his head now, which I think is what you haven't seen so much of um, in his Liverpool career. But he's, he's clearly got so much himself, but he doesn't know quite how to kind of stitch it together in relation to where his teammates are standing on the pitch. Um, so, yeah, that's been a real kind of plus point of the restart. And, yeah, fingers crossed the, the fitness just stays how it is and he can sort of carry that forward into next season. Because I think given that the gap is going to be relatively small heading into next season, he's kind of got that bank of, of 
some credit there uh, to build on. Um, and I think as well, you know, I touched on Minamino and stuff and the celebrations, but Cater is so sort of, he looks so integrated now, so comfortable. Yes. You know, him and Mane have got that obviously close bond, but there was a great video of the Navi lad thing in the changing room. And he, he just looks like he's really enjoying being part of it now. Um, so yeah, long may that continue. Tactically, like you're saying, it's kind of a brand of organized disorder, whereas Cater, like you said, it was an out of structure chaos that was a bit like, it, it, it can be helpful in games where you kind of need a real like chaos agent to change things up. Cater just fits a bit more seamlessly. And that's another one, Dan, in terms of what we discussed with Thiago before, where Liverpool's evolution could simply just be the case we actually have him for 30 games of a league season, you know, straight, with maybe one break in there because he's Naby Keita. Um, but that would be a massive boost if he was just able to have a real sustained period of, of health. I think what you see a lot of sort of what he brings to the team um, on, on Wednesday, I think... And one of the main things that stuck out to me was just whenever Chelsea had a, a foothold in the game, you know, they started both halves really well, from what I remember, and he just gets us, he just gets us on the ball. He just gets us retaining possession. Um, and as well, he's, he's, able, he's able to sort of recover the ball better than, than anyone numbers-wise. You know, look at his numbers, they're just through the roof. So his ability to... His, his intelligence to get Liverpool on the ball and moving on the ball is, yeah, it's 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 fundamental in games like that, and it's going to be fundamental going forward into next season because I think there will be sort of a little, especially if the five subs stay, I think there'll be a little bit of a, a coming out and seeing if you can lay a glove on Liverpool type of approach in certain games, and I think he's he's massive for that because, like I say, he he gets Liverpool going, he gets Liverpool in possession um, as good as anyone. But also, you know, if teams commit like Chelsea did between the lines, he showed the other night just what he's capable of in terms of picking the ball up and, and getting in those spaces and knitting it all together. And he's got a huge ceiling still. And, and, and I think there, has, there have been problems for me in terms of, I think it took him, I don't, I don't want to go into sort of personality slants and stuff like that because I don't know him and, and this is not what I'm doing. But I'd argue it's probably taken him too long to learn the language, from what we know. Um, I think that there's there's been problems with his injuries that he can't help and nobody can help, and that's been frustrating. But in terms of just him settling, I was surprised, you know, how long it took him to, to sort of adapt the language and stuff like that. Well, it's fundamental if you're going to be in this dressing room to know sort of what's being said at all times and. I hope he is kind of settling in a bit more now and stuff like that. But yeah, he's a, he's a unique player and he's got so much talent. He's got so much ability that, you know, I just hope that he can get that momentum and stay fit because he's he's one of those players to me. He looks as if he looks around the football pitch and just decides he's better than everyone else. Yeah. I'm better than you. Yeah. That, that's the type of player he looks at to me. And he, and, he, and he is, you know, nine times out of ten, he goes, I'm better than every player on this pitch. And I'll just be that. Let's just do that. Whereas you look at other players, like Ox gets in his own head massively. I think Minamino is a little bit the same. And Kaisers, for me, is just one who, who knows his own ceiling. And um, and I hope, like I say, we can just get him on the pitch. 
He looks so comfortable now. The, the big the big change since um, since the restart one, he looked bulked up. He looked bulked up right away throughout that. And I was thinking about this the other day. It's probably the first time they've had with him without injury where they can spend three months either reformatting his body or doing whatever they wanted to do with him from a physical standpoint to um, to make him like a Liverpool player. Um, it, he's making more passes per game now. He's dribbling less. There was always a feeling that he was trying to make up for the lost time in the, the one match he got or the three games starts he got. And now it feels like he's just so much more comfortable and just playing more of a natural game. Like I said, dribbling less, passing more. But then when he's getting into the kind of the old navigator positions, he's been much more efficient and productive when he's got there. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Let's move on to Jordan Henderson, who is the PFA writer's footballer of the year, which I do make the distinction because they're always at pains to say that they do actually bundle in the off-the-pitch stuff. It's why Marcus Rashford was considered that he may have a shot to um to win the thing. It's not just player of the year. They do consider it footballer of the year, and they do include personality and stuff just above play. Um, this is fascinating because Jordan Henderson has upset every fan base, but Liverpool's fan base is by even being involved in the conversation. Even if you look at... Chelsea fans, Manchester United fans, Man City fans, they would be fine with Virgil van Dijk or Mo Salah or Sadio Mane winning. There's something about Jordan Henderson and the concept of him being the embodiment of Klopp's Liverpool, which we've all written about. It does a disservice to his own actual technical brilliance in his own game. Jordan Henderson seems to really tee off other fan bases in a way that no other player in the squad quite does. Um, it's interesting, Dan, just the discourse surrounding this award. It is it's very unfair to Anderson, I think. I think it's brilliant. He won it. So that's fantastic. But the the idea of him being the rah-rah, the cheerleader guy, we've kind of discussed it ad nauseum ourselves, but it's worth putting a bow on it here today. Um, just so much more than that now. And just evolved into being the fulcrum of the side for massive portions of this season where they've been the, one of the best teams the Premier League's ever seen. Yeah, I thought, I thought, I thought we made, I think it was Joel made an excellent point this morning that Everyone's talking about Kevin De Bruyne, but Man City have lost nine games in the Premier League. Where, where was he? You know, where was? And I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think a Premier League player of the year should be defined by sort of Steven Gerrard, Roy the Rovers type role. Um, but literally, you know, Jordan Henderson has dragged Liverpool through games of football at times this season, and and he's done it in a way that is befitting of a, of of an elite top-level footballer, you know, for me, I say it all the time, long-range passion is is exceptional. I think that positionally, tactically, switched on in terms of with his passion, he's been head and shoulders above certainly other midfielders in the league. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, Pep Guardiola talks about these awards go to Liverpool all the time and so on and so forth. Well, that's all well and good saying that, but Mo, Mo Salah scored 40 goals in the league season. You know, like, <laughs> it, it isn't a surprise. Jordan Henderson played and captained the team that won 26 out of 27 games. This is this is next level type of sort of performance. It's, it's a testament to him that he's the best player in this side or has been deemed so or will be deemed so. You know, Sadio Mane's had a phenomenal season. So... <laughs> What does that say about about Jordan Henderson? Anyone who's still banging that he was average for so long, drum, I can't help them. I don't want to have a conversation with them. To be honest, I don't even want to hear what they've got to say because they're talking absolute nonsense. So, yeah, his ability, I mean, his ability to kind of irk so many football supporters, it's probably his greatest ever achievement, to be honest. Um, 
it's probably his, his, his lasting legacy in the game is that he just seemingly annoys so many people for, for no reason at all. Um, yeah, fair play to him. He's, he's, he speaks for himself now, Wally. That's the thing. I mm-hmm. think he speaks, he speaks in trophy lifts. He speaks yes. in metal. He speaks in the same... You know, he can be put in the bracket of a Sooness, a Thompson, a Gerrard. He can be he can be put in that company, and, and that in itself, for all Graeme Sooness did wrong after he, he stopped becoming a player, he's still defined by the player he was, which was, you know, an absolute monster of a footballer who won things, who was a winner, who was a consummate winner and captain of Liverpool Football Club, and that that sort of that sort of sits in its own in its own bracket for me um, and for many. Yeah, the, the Henderson stuff, I, I, I find it just confusing. I think at this point, it's just willful ignorance. Uh, Joel, you had a piece ago about the six different styles of Henderson. The, the, the notion, even among still a subsection of Liverpool's fan base, of the sideways passing merchant you collapse. And I say it all the time, like, Sadio Mane, Mo Salah, Virgil van Dijk, three of the best players on earth do not need a lad from Sunderland to, to shout at them to do stuff. You know, they're pretty good at football on their own. Where does this thing come from, Joel? That he isn't that he is still kind of this this box to box bomber who just kind of efforts his way through games. And yet, when you look at the numbers, they've won eighty two percent of their games with him this season, and only fifty eight percent without him. And obviously, there's noise in those numbers and what have you, based on who else was playing and stuff. Um, but it's kind of undeniable at this point just how vitally important he has been to the structure of the team. Yeah. I, I... I've thought about this a lot. Why, why is it that he bothers people so much? Because, you know, <laughs> as a person, he, there's, not, there's not like an obvious thing to hate about him, really. If anything, it should be the opposite. You know, someone who's come from, faced so much adversity and has battled his way past his critics to this point. Um, it's something to be admired. I think it's uh, reflective of a general sort of tendency in, in sort of football fan culture where people just put players in boxes and they accept or they, they have a picture in their head of what a player is and how they perceive him and they won't change that. It doesn't matter what the evidence suggests. Um, and I think what, what's been strange about Henderson this season, yes, I think we'd all agree it's, it's been the best season of his career in terms of performances, in terms of accolades. Um, but this is not It's not like he's just come out of nowhere. This is not new. You go back to 13, 14 and you know, a lot of people would say the reason they didn't get over the line in the league was because he wasn't on the pitch. And I would agree with that. Second half of... 2012-13, he was, he was scoring plenty of goals that season as well. 14-15, um, again, is another massive overlooked season. Liverpool were terrible that season. Henderson gets 14 assists playing right wing back and centre mid, and I think he gets seven goals as well. So it's not like he's just come out of nowhere and delivered this season. I think we have seen him sort of step up um, to a new level. I think what's most impressive is the range of roles that he's done it and he started in that sort of advanced right-sided role, which is really quite a selfless role, mostly kind of geared around creating space and opportunities for Trent and Salah to do what they do. Um, and then he has to come back and perform this old role, which people saw as kind of not a hindrance to him, I suppose, but not his natural position, the number six thing, uh, which he did for a while. And then Fabinho came in and did it, did it even better. But then, yeah, that, that two-month period, really, between sort of the start of December through to kind of a new year into January and February, I can't recall many two-month periods in my lifetime that's been more influential by a single player on a team as what Henderson did in that period. Um, it was just unbelievable, like Dan says, that, you know, dragging the team through games. Everything that gets over, Liverpool weren't conceding goals at all in this period. And I know 
that's a team thing. Joe Gomez played a massive part in that coming back into the side alongside Van Dijk. Uh, but Henderson at the base of that midfield, I think this is what maybe gets overlooked in the conversation around him. Is that number six role, the way Liverpool play with the fullback so high and the front three playing as they do, that holding midfield role is one of the most tactically demanding roles in any team in world football. There's so few players that can do what he does in terms of the demands off the ball, on the ball, um, you know, the way he tidies things up for everyone else. And, you know, we touched on his passing technique as well. There's, there's so much in there. And I think when you're trying to compare him to someone like De Bruyne, who's obviously has had a phenomenal season, but I mean, how do you measure De Bruyne's assists against Henderson's ability to break up play, start yeah. attacks? They're just the different functions, aren't they? And then as we touched on there, it's more than just the stuff on the pitch. It's who he is, the way he, he leads, the way he captains, all the stuff that he does off the pitch and in that three-month break as well feeds into it. So, yeah, delighted for him. I've been a big advocate of his pretty much all the way through. So, um, it, it feels really deserving for him to get all this praise. And I think it's quite telling as well that his teammates are kind of, obviously very supportive of him, but I think I wouldn't be surprised if they vote for him as their player of the season as well. Um, yeah. I think there's already, I think it was Robertson a few weeks ago was asked who who is Liverpool's player of the season. And he said, it's Henderson. He's been our best player, um, which I think speaks volumes. So yeah, the more fume, the better really. Dan, he's become um, quite an oxymoronic player in the fact that when he's further forward, he's actually a bit more defensive in terms of leading the press and stuff. And he's not quite as influential creatively. Yet when he moves to that sixth role, like Joel said, you can't forget the context of just how well Fabinho was playing. And it was probably his best run of form as a Liverpool player. And everyone was so excited about this Fabinho. And now he's finally arrived. And this is the guy we expected him to be. And then he drops back to the six. And he actually becomes more of a creator because he's initiating stuff. And he really is setting the tempo at such a high level um, in terms of the speed of the, the ball moving. That when he shuffled a bit back, he actually opened his game up more uh, as, as an attacking threat. I was, I was so impressed with how he transitioned back into the six. I wrote something earlier in the season about numbers-wise, how Fabinho was was being was was more creative than Henderson, um, and I think a lot of it was to do with kind of deep line progressions and the ability to sort of pick that that angled sort of vertical clip ball that Fabinho loves. You're getting you're just getting that little bit more of the pitch in front of you, and that can offer more creativity sometimes. People just associate. That six role would be in a destroyer, and it's not so much more. Um, and it's one of the hardest jobs in football, as Joel says. Well, what I mean, that was impressive from him, but I think it often gets lost as well. Just how much he do he did when he went into the number eight role. Um, how much he helped Trent, his ability to to play in in sort of right midfield areas and and sort of liberate Trent, but also offer him a pass. The amount of times Henderson takes a ball with his back to goal halfway line and and never loses it, never comes out sort of leaving the team exposed, always willing to take it. That type of that type of ability to sort of keep Liverpool in shape, ticking over. Um it's really, really hard to sort of put your finger on as as something that is standout brilliant. It's not you know, he's not he's not picking the ball up into Bruyne areas and, and putting it into into the six-yard box with, you know, with absolute venom and, and, and everyone lauding him. He's not doing that. He's he's making angles for the players to, to look better. He's making 
he sort of he sort of knows where this Liverpool team is on or should be on the pitch, two three moves before anyone else. And when I when I talked about, I sort of I made some loose sort of examples and, and sort of loose um, comparisons the other day when I talked about Busquets and Roy Keane, and mm. I didn't mean them in terms of players. What I mean is sort of the ability for a player to understand what's being asked of him by the manager and the coaching staff. He understands this system better than anybody, and it's one of the most complex systems in the world. It's that's the reason they pulled on by five players for summer is that this system is so hard to adapt to. That I think in years to come, I think that'll be the sort of the, the talking point from these players when they sit down and do interviews. Is they'll, they'll look at the camera and they'll say, "You don't realise how hard this team was to play in. You don't realise how many things that were being asked of you constantly, time and again. How many different." Roles, how many, how many times that you had to be a chameleon in in one set of ninety minutes? It's he gets that more than more than any other player. He understands what's being asked, and yeah, he does. He's done that in two positions this season. Again, it's for me, it's it's a no-brainer that he should get this award. And we're not governed by individual awards. We've won the biggins, but good that he's he's being recognised definitely. And it is just kind of fun, isn't it? The, the irony of. Um, the the, ind- the individual on the team underachieved who had a, a monstrous season um, to the to the the team that was the best team with the system and won the league. We, we went through that for a decade with Steven Gerrard, and it, it was one rule then, and now it's one rule that Liverpool actually have the title. Um, let's move to the the final thing on our docket, which is the permutations of the final day of the Premier League season. Um, I mean, it's this is about as exciting a finish when there's no title race on the line that we've had in, in years, really. We've got the Champions League to figure out. we got Leicester, United, Wolves, um, those games. Those are going to be fantastic. Chelsea, obviously. And there's the relegation battle. And it has a massive, might be overstating it a little bit, might be a little bit of hyperbole, but it has pretty big implications for Liverpool into this summer and into next season. You know, if United get into the Champions League, it radically changes their budget. It changes the kind of, of players they can attract. And they are a team on the rise, whether you would like to say it or not. And then with the relegation battle, there's all kinds of relegation release clauses and players' contracts. You know Liverpool are constantly looking for market inefficiencies. They've been into the market before of trying to get players who have been relegated and those clauses become active. So it's actually quite a big final day from a Liverpool's perspective, Joel. Yeah, it is. While at the same time, their matches is one of the, 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 the <laughs> yeah. most uh, non-event games of football they're going to have to play against a Newcastle team who, who've got nothing to play for anyway. But yeah, you're right. There's a, there's a lot there. I've just got a table up here because I've been trying to work out the maths. It is quite complicated. But I think um, in terms of the relegation, I mean, that's interesting because there are, for all the talk of kind of this being a poor league or there being so many kind of low quality teams near the bottom or whatever, there are a lot of players down there who are still good enough, you'd think, to improve squads in the top six of the league, including Liverpool, I put them in that. Um, and we were talking this morning about um, Aston Villa and, you know, everyone's talking about Jack Grealish as kind of the obvious standout there. But John McGinn is definitely a player who could do something uh, in a top six squad. Um, the one I'm really intrigued by, and I, I, to be honest, I think they will go down Watford. Uh, I don't know how they managed to get themselves into this mess from where they were. Um, but Ismail Assar is the one yeah. I have my eye on if they do go down, because I think they, they probably almost certainly will have to sell him. Um, he obviously did that performance against Liverpool at Vicarage Road but I've, I've watched a fair bit of him this season in general and he is quite raw we saw at Anfield as well his, his finishing wasn't great that day 
Um, I think if, if Liverpool are looking at cover for the right-hand side, someone who brings pace, goals, assists, um, has a huge ceiling in terms of being able to improve further, um, he is one I would definitely be interested in. He's also interestingly taken a, almost exactly the same path to kind of where he is now as, as Mane took, came through the same um, academy in Senegal. And I think it was Metz was his first European club and then obviously gets his Premier League move. So, yeah, um, Watford have got Arsenal, haven't they, on the last day, yeah. which, again, the, the way Arsenal are playing at the moment, I know uh, they had a disappointing result the other night, but you wouldn't be surprised um, if, if they get the win there. So, yeah, a lot to play for. In terms of the top four, I think probably would prefer United with the ones that miss out, which seems like the least likely scenario out of the three teams battling for it. Um, I've just got my eye on, on this, and I don't think it will happen, but if Chelsea, they're so unpredictable, Chelsea, you wouldn't be surprised if they beat Wolves 2-0, but you wouldn't be surprised if they find themselves 1-0 down and scrapping. Yep. If they do lose, that, there's a scenario where Leicester and Man U can just play out a boring draw and they, they'll both get it um, and Chelsea miss out. So, yeah, it's nice to be in a position where it's sort of, uh, you can watch it from afar. Um, and Liverpool will do what they do. They can still finish on 99 points, which would be nice, second highest total ever, and obviously would surpass last season. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It could be a bit of a mad one as well from team selection point of view. Dan, who do you, which, which team would you prefer finishes in the top four? Like, which team do you think you would prefer to miss out, should I say? And then which team would have the biggest impact on Liverpool by missing out? Um... I think the answer remains Manchester United. Um, you know, we can laugh at people making um, top-class saves from from 18 yards out with the hands uh, against West Ham and stuff like that. But there are there are still for me two institutions of English football, and one is Liverpool, and one is Man United. And for that reason, I don't think they've got the right structure in place right now to be successful. But for that reason, it, it does Liverpool no harm at all to sort of keep them at arm's length, no matter what their, their level is. And I do think it will be, I think it'd be financially devastating for them if if they lose out. Um, and I think I, I've got a sneaking feeling Leicester will, will beat them. Um, I've got a sneaking feeling that Leicester will, will find a way to just, you know, expend every fibre of energy they've got into that 90 minutes. And, and United do not like tempo. They really don't um, tempo against them. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think the answer remains United. Chelsea, Chelsea are an odd side. They're an odd team who are seemingly adopting an odd transfer strategy, in my opinion. The the game the other night examples how they're the only team in the league who can literally replace a front three with a completely different front three. And they're seemingly hell bent on it on buying another front three as well. <laughs> so they're gonna, they're gonna have they're gonna have three sets of front threes next season, and 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 are seemingly given no consideration to to centre backs or centre midfielders, which they're desperately short. Or a goalkeeper, um, which might might be the number one so, priority. Yeah. So they are they are completely lopsided for me, and I can't really see them balancing those books. Or balancing that 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 deficit in in one summer if they're going to go and get have it on top of Zayek, Vera, whoever else. Um. So, so I think Chelsea will sort of. 
I think Chelsea might come undone next season. Everyone's already tipping them as title rivals, I think. But the first five games will be crucial for them because they will they will score a half full against certain teams. But I think there'll be games where you just see you just see a way to play against them unfolding. And I think that'll be the way home and that'll be their undoing. Um Leicester, I think if I'm talking as a purist, I think Leicester deserve it. They've, they've, in my opinion, they've set a bar all season. They've, they've been there. They've, they've sort of made it a priority. And, and you know, we often say Liverpool do things the hard way. If you're a Leicester fan this season, you'll be absolutely tearing your hair out about how you've ended up in this position, in the position you've been in. Um, you will be, I, I would be, I would be, sort of on the floor going into this game Sunday, even though, you know, you want to give it everything to win. I, there'd be a big part of me thinking, how on earth have we ended up in this situation? You know, this should have been done, home and host. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, it's intriguing the other end as well, I think, because I think one of the things no one's really touched on about it is that goal difference counts for nothing down the other end. And that's one of the, this is one of the first or the fewest occasions I can remember where, there isn't sort of the benefit of a point from goal difference, you know. Bournemouth and Watford are minus 27 and Villa, Villa are minus 26. So that basically puts it all on the results. And I think, yeah, I think Watford and Bournemouth are done. I think they'll both lose. Um, and I think I think Villa will get something at West Ham. So West Ham, for me, are up. Helps me because I think we always, we always find Watford really tricky for some reason. It's just yeah. one of those things. Bournemouth, I mean, we've we've walloped and we've sort of been able to take 15 million for them for said said player who isn't of any use to us anymore. So that'll be a shame. Um, but from from the Watford angle, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't bother me that they're going um, because I think they've they've been a been a slight slight thorn in our side over the years. Just going back to Chelsea, they're the ones that interest me most because I think you can play out an argument uh, a couple of ways where if they wind up in the Europa League, they'll just pie that off and then they can really devote their resources to having a title push if they think they're there. Whereas if they wind up in the Champions League, I, I've still yet to be convinced as Lampard as kind of a long-term manager who can juggle his squad and figure out the rotation for this game and a match plan for that game. I still think he's going to need another year or two of figuring that out at that level. Um, on the squad building thing, though, I find it funny that people are, are trying to look for all these um, lessons to be learned from Klopp's Liverpool and what have you, and yet we still live in the instant gratification culture. So Chelsea kind of have to do it now for some reason. I, I get the confusion about going top head with Zayat, Werner and, and Havertz, but if those players are on the market and you can get them as Chelsea, why can that not just be step one that then next year they go and address the defence? Why does it all have to be done in one year? That, that's a bit confusing to me. Yeah, it's crazy. Like I said as well, you know, they kind of they they had they have two different front threes. Like they had an industrial front three for an hour against Liverpool, and they just brought on pace and 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 physicality and and athleticism and unbelievable. You know, it wasn't the case of we're bringing this lad on up top and you're going to have to deal with him because he's he's quite good. It's like yeah, we'll bring Sammy. Come on, but if you see how good Christian Pulisic is, and if you haven't, he's supposed to dance through three year defenders. And then, you know, on the other side, there's a player who, who, who Bayern Munich were absolutely, you know, steaming for, not last season. So it's it's crazy how sort of how they've they've sat around the room and said, okay, you know, we've got all this excess from selling Hazard and bringing in over a hundred million when we had the transfer ban, but 
I think we should we should solely focus on bringing Liverpool's targets in and, uh, <laughs> and just getting you know getting ourselves a front eight. Let's just do that. Um, yeah, crazy. Uh, I, I don't I don't I, I don't hate I don't it because I don't see I mean, where. I don't see where the, the where a player of the caliber of Havertz. I, I really think Havertz is like a generational talent. There. I think he's really, truly special. Where that guy is for that money right now, who would assure their defense? You know, it's like they're looking for a, you're looking for a Van Dyke, you're looking for an Allison. That's why everyone says, find them for me in the market. You know, you are gambling on 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 young lads who you hope could become that. I mean, even the goalkeepers they're linked to, it's like, really, this is going to put you over the top? Like, trying to nab Dean Henderson from United, Nick Pope? It's like, so you're going to drop 60 million on, on one of them? And it, So yeah. I, I don't, I don't think it's a, it, it does seem a bit silly on paper, I understand, but like, if the plan is to do it over two, three years and not just have it be all about next season, I, I do see some of the thought process. Um, all right, we'll wrap it up there. Um, that's been it for this week's edition of the Liverpool.com podcast. Make sure you go and check out the website. All kinds of good stuff going on. We've got decent collabs coming out over the weekend. Deep profiles on Jordan Henderson and Adam Lallana, as you mentioned. Go and read Chris Walsh's piece where he embodies the Premier League trophy and lets you know how it feels to be touched by the hands of Jordan Henderson, um, which is, it, it really is something. It's the only way you can describe this. So I would encourage you to go and all read that. Make sure you subscribe to the newsletter and keep checking the Blood Red podcast channel for podcasts we have coming out this week. Thank you all for listening this week and I hope you all stay safe. You've been listening to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo.